Good evening. Welcome to our Bible study, James chapter 5, 13 to 18. Pray in always. Just to say that we trust that you had our email earlier today and we look forward to seeing as many of you are as able or comfortable with coming to the church on Sunday morning at 10.30. What a joy to be able to say that after this long season, to be able to gather together in some way. We'll be starting our afternoon services again, although online only, and our Bible studies on Thursday nights will continue to be online. All the details were in the letter. Any questions, please do not hesitate to get in touch. But look forward, I do look forward to welcoming and seeing as many of you as are, pos- are able to or comfortable with coming on the Lord's Day to Lake Road. James chapter 4 verses 11 through to James chapter 5 and verse 6 is where James was dealing with worldliness and James is concerned to show how worldliness shows itself in our speech and in our attitudes toward and our use of material wealth and money. And if you remember, James used these, these as a diagnosis, that you get an unedited version in certain circumstances of a person's heart, which is reflected in their speech, which is exactly what James is saying. And he's saying that our speech in various ways is indicative of what is actually going on in our hearts. So in the same way, when you're making judgments about the use of material possessions, the use of money, you're getting a little bit of an unedited version of what is going on in the heart. Now, when we looked at James 5 verse 7 last week, we began the final portion of James's letter. And these are the words that often speakers may say, my concluding remarks. For James, they are short, punchy, practical, powerful exhortations which he wants to leave ringing in the ears and the hearts of the Christians to whom he's been speaking. And as we've seen James do before, he goes back in these final words to things that he spoke about at the very beginning of the book. For example, if you look at James 5, verses 7 to 12, you see the theme is patience. How did James open the book? By talking about patience. And so James is going to take us back to some well-worked themes that he opens with, which is the method of a good teacher. He repeats important things that are to be known. So James 5, 13 to 18, the passage is fundamentally about prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. Heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. This is one of the most difficult passages in the book of James. It's one of the most controversial passages in the book of James. The passage has sometimes been used to justify what some churches call auricular confession, which is confession of sin through a priest. It has been used to justify 
the practice of extreme unction or the last rites, where a priest anoints and then prays with a specific form of words over someone who's dying. It's been appealed to, this passage, by faith healers. But if you look at it carefully, James is teaching us that prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is divinely appointed. It is an instrument whereby we receive the benefits of God's fatherly mercy. And indeed, as we've already seen in this passage, James returns to a pattern that he revealed in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's that patience theme. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, he calls on believers to endure throughout trials. He's calling us to be patient, to be steadfast, and he calls us to do so with prayer and even with rejoicing. James 5, uh, 7 to 12, that theme of patience, that word patience, waiting, steadfastness, is used seven times. And in our passage tonight, verses 13 to 18, prayer is mentioned seven times. So James is going back to a pattern that he introduced at the beginning of the book. How do, as believers, do we persevere in the midst of trial? He doesn't only say be patient, he says pray. And it's not only to persevere with a patient endurance that looks for the coming of Christ, to weather every storm with that forward-looking gaze set on the coming of our Lord Jesus, but it is also to do so expressing your faith manifestly in God's sovereign and good providence for you by prayer, by praying to him, showing your trust in him by prayer. So we see patience and prayer combined again. I want you to see four things with me in this wonderful passage. In verse 13, the praying Christian. In verses 14 and 15, the praying elders. In the first bit of verse 16, praying friends. And in the second half of 16 through to 18, the praying prophets. Number one, the praying Christian, verse 13. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. The good, the bad, manifested by prayer. Now, this is quite clear. Verse 13 is quite straightforward compared to what is coming. But in every circumstance of life, brothers and sisters, pray. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. The good, the bad in the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. The joyful, the heartbreak of the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. Communion with God in the good times and in the bad times is to be manifested by prayer. Just listen to what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? That's the bad times, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? The good times, let him sing praise. So James's response to suffering to the Christian is not simply to say, just be patient, but to entrust yourself to the care of your loving Father, to Almighty God, and there is only one way to do that, prayer. So prayer is always appropriate. It's always appropriate to pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that the one urge that should never be resisted is the urge to pray. 
There are many urges in life that need to be resisted, but the urge to prayer should never be resisted, instead cultivated. Prayer is always appropriate, my friends. Pray when you're suffering. Praise when you rejoice. Sing when you're cheerful. In periods of trouble, in times of rejoicing, prayer, praise, acknowledge that God is sufficient to help us. Trust in him, acknowledging him as the giver of every good gift. No matter what is happening in our lives, we should pray and praise God. In suffering, pray. In plenty, praise. Because the Christian life is to be consecrated by prayer to God so that every pleasure is hallowed and every pain sanctified. We're to live the Christian life so that every pleasure is made holy by our acknowledging that that comes from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. In every season of rejoicing, it is to be hallowed with praise. I just love this, that in every season of rejoicing, it is to be hallowed with praise. But James doesn't just say that this is the case in the in the good times, in the seasons of rejoicing. It's to be the, the case in the times of suffering. It would have prayed to the Lord for strength in those seasons of suffering. James is saying that in every circumstance of life, run to the Lord in prayer. John Calvin beautifully said, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Even in the extremes of life, in, the, in cheerfulness and in sorrow, go to the Lord in prayer. God wants us to talk to him at all times. In trouble, he is our comforter. In joy, he is the giver of all good. And in going to him in prayer, we hallow every pleasure, we sanctify every pain. Alec Motia said this most beautifully. Our whole life should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. The good, the bad, and that communion is to be manifested in prayer. Secondly, verses 14 and 15, the praying elders, which is where it gets a bit hard. And speaking about calling on the elders, you know, there's the leaders, the shepherds, the pastors, the communion of the saints. As representative of that totality of the communion of the saints to come and call down God's help in times of need. So James is reminding us in verses 14 and 15 that the Christian life is a life of community. It isn't just about an individual Jesus and the person and his Bible. It's about life in a community of believers, all of whom who are helping on one another, who are assisting one another, who are encouraging one another to love and good deeds, who are praying with and for one another and who are seeking to live together as heirs of the grace of life. The Christian life is a one of community. It makes sense that there are certain times when you do not simply just need another Christian to pray with you, but you need the communion of the saints represented to be praying with and for you. And furthermore, the Christian life is one that is dependent on the Lord, that is dependent on the Holy Spirit. And what better way to manifest that dependence on the one hand 
in the communion of the saints that reliance on the other hand of the Lord to call the elders together to pray for you in a very serious circumstance. In verse 14, if you're seriously ill, what should you do? Call the elders to pray for you. And James links the healing and prayer and the elders and God's divine intervention. Now, this passage has been used to justify the last rites, extreme unction. And I'll say just in passing that it doesn't do that at all. The passage looks at the hope, the hopeful prospect that the person will be restored to health, praying that you would get well. This isn't about last rites, and it doesn't talk about priests or even the minister coming and administering this prayer. It talks about the elders coming and giving this prayer. Now, there are several questions in this passage. How sick do you have to be before you call the elders in? Another is, how about this business about the prayer of faith raising him up? Yeah, we'll save the one who is sick. Does that mean that all health problems are the result of your personal sin? So first of all, how sick do you have to be before you call in the elders? Well, the passage makes it really clear it's a pretty serious circumstance. Because if, if we had the elders in to pray for everything, the elders would be fairly busy doing that and nothing else. I think it's a fairly serious circumstance. The elders come to the person. The person is, is not able to come to the elders. The elders do all the praying here. The, this isn't like a group prayer where the person is too praying there's no indication that the person is joining with the prayer the term that James uses for a sick indicates this is a prolonged or grave illness and in this passage in contrast to the Lord Jesus's healing passages in the gospel the sick person isn't called upon to exercise faith you remember many times when Jesus was about to heal a person he called upon that person to believe there's no mention of that now that doesn't mean that the person shouldn't exercise faith but apparently the indication is the person is at such a low ebb that nothing has been asked of this person other than that they have called the elders to come pray for them and then just notice that there is this interesting phrase used for the elders prayer they're not asked to pray with the sick person to pray over the sick person. It all adds up to this serious circumstance. But what about the other issue? The prayer of faith will raise him up. Does that mean that every time the elders pray, that prayer will be answered by the person's healing? Well, first of all, notice that James has just said in the immediate context, it is presumption in our speech to say something is going to happen without saying if the Lord will. And secondly, when James was teaching us how to, when Jesus, sorry, was teaching us how to pray, one of the most fundamental things that he said is thy will, we needed to pray, was thy will be done. It's never inappropriate to pray, Lord willing. It's never inappropriate to pray, thy will be done. So the prayer of faith will raise up, doesn't contradict or replace the Lord's teaching or James's emphasis on prayer. Thy will be done, and if the Lord wills. Whatever the passage means, it isn't contradicting that. We must always pray in submission to the will of the Lord. And one of the most beautiful truths about that, my friends, is that God doesn't answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser, which is one of the mercies of being a child of God. He answers our prayers better than we pray them. Don't you love that? Well, what about this relationship quickly between the forgiveness of sin and healing is is physical sickness, all physical sickness, connected with 
personal sin. Well, Jesus makes it clear that isn't the case. John 9 verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We can't universally say that sin is the root cause of all physical problems. There is a link between forgiveness and healing, and I think it is because it's in the fact that it's on a sickbed that we engage in self-examination. We take account. We see our sin. We have that desire to get right with others. And the very fact that in the next verse, James is talking about the restoration of fellowship between friends and Christ who have been estranged suggests that there is a connection between forgiveness and healing. It isn't that the person is sick because they've sinned. It is that physical sickness reminds us of our spiritual sickness and our need to be right with God. Our need to get forgiveness or extend forgiveness. Our need to get right with one another. And that may explain some of the linkages in James 5, 14 to 15. But the point is clear when you're facing this severe illness call on the elders of the church it's a way of expressing your confidence that God blesses through his people he hears the prayers of his people and he is the one you need in your hour of need thirdly verse 16 praying friends the first bit not only the praying Christian verse 13 the praying elders 14 and 15 praying friends and these are praying friends who have run into a relational problem they are estranged maybe somebody has said something that has brought about a rift maybe there's been a disagreement or some kind of relational problem they're estranged so James says confess your sins to one another pray for one another that you may be healed James doesn't say go pray go go confess to somebody else he doesn't say go confess your sins to a priest. He doesn't say go to get, get together in your small group and talk about the problem that you have with your friend. Go to your friend. That is the person from whom you're estranged and seeking to bring about reconciliation. You're looking to extend forgiveness, to be forgiven, to bring about a restoration of relationship. You're confessing to the one that you've offended. You're praying for one another that you may be healed. There is nothing more contradictory to what God is doing in the church than division between brothers and sisters in Christ. If James is saying, if that is the case, pray that it would be remedied. Another point here. If someone is convicted about this and wants a relationship restored, it is a very serious thing to reject. It's a very serious thing to reject that offer to reconcile based on this passage of scripture. A very serious thing. You go to one another. You, you confess your sins to one another. You pray for one another in order that it might be restored. It's a beautiful picture of restoration. The fourth point is that the, the believer must believe that God is able and prayer is his instrument. We, 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 we've covered some really thorny issues and James knows that praying in times of suffering... Remembering to praise God in the good times. Prayer when we're ill. Praying in the case of a broken relationship. 
It can tax our faith in God. So verses 16 to 18, he gives us this picture of Elijah. And the picture he's showing us is because we, we're tempted to say that there is no way that this relationship is going to be restored this side of glory. And what are you doing? You're discounting the power of prayer. So he gives us this picture of Elijah, who is fallible at, like we are. And that, that fallibility is apparent on the pages of Scripture. But when Elijah reigned, it didn't rain in the country he was for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and it poured. And James's point is, don't discount prayer. Never discount prayer. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. Do you believe in prayer? Does your daily prayer life reflect that you believe in prayer? James is saying in every circumstance of life, pray. Never discount the power of prayer as a means of grace. May God use these words for his glory and our eternal good. And as I said at the outset, if you're able or feel comfortable with, please come and see us on Sunday morning at 10.30. God bless.